Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. Okay, Sborn Nene Law. My opinion in this conspiracy theory, President Erdogan planned the coup as a means of state capture in order for him to get more power within the school and have to have radical action, which he's doing with regards to the journalists being um, arrested and with um, academics being arrested too, I mean, taking away because of the, the association with the Kulan and school and what they're perpetuating. I think it is an obvious ploy to get power in a very delicate time in, in, in our times, particularly in Europe because of the fears of, 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 of terrorism. It's a blow for him to get to garner power and to garner power not just for him but his party and their agendas. And I think ugh, it's scary. It's really, really scary. Academic freedom is the ability to, to have education that is not monitored by a state or by a monopoly and that is that is fair and that is honest and that has integrity. Um, as long as the education and as long as the academia has integrity, it is therefore free, right? Is it being infringed in Turkey? It is definitely being infringed in Turkey because what's happening is the only reason why these particular academics are being singled out is because their Gulan supporters have um, Gulan affiliation. Therefore, you're targeting a particular type of a type of uh, type of academia. And therefore, that's a form of discrimination and a form of persecution. So definitely, uh, academic freedom is being infringed upon heavily. It's just being done come up back angles because they know that the world's not going to be focusing on that. They're going to be focusing on security because that's a general fear in Turkey. It's a ploy. In this week's episode, we hear about the current situation in higher education in Turkey in the midst of an increasingly authoritarian state. Thousands of academic and teaching staff have been dismissed from their posts at universities and colleges, and their freedoms have been compromised in many other ways. How does this relate to challenges experienced elsewhere, and what can international academics do to help colleagues in Turkey? Our guest is Professor Dar Dergimensoglu, who, as well as being incredibly tolerant of my efforts to pronounce his name correctly, is a development psychologist and activist. Prof. Dergimensoglu has joined the American University of Cairo as a visiting professor at the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, Psychology, and Egyptology. Prior to that, he taught developmental and community psychology at Doges University in Istanbul. Since completing his PhD in the U.S. in the mid-90s, Prof. Dermijensoglu has published widely in Turkish and English on matters ranging from social justice, children's rights, community psychology to youth development. A very warm welcome to our guest, Professor Dr. Sedar Dermin Sioglu. Thank you so much for joining us. Our first question for you today is, what is the climate in the higher education sector in Turkey at the moment? Uh, the climate is not good at all. Fear is basically dominating. 
And right after the state of emergency was declared, after July 15th, the government very quickly started purges. And the purges so far have really, really decimated the dissidents. The government found a good opportunity to crack down on the universities and about 15 universities were shut down simply because they have allegedly had ties to the people who attempted the coup. And very soon it became clear that purges were on the way and a good number of people who were dissidents, who were either leftists or who were affiliated with the Kurdish movement, who were socialists, they were purged. And how did these purges take place? Well, the purges are taking place without any legal basis because there is a state of emergency in effect right now. The government can issue a decree and the decree can leave people without a job overnight, which happened on September the 1st. Uh, many people were left out of their jobs because the government wanted them uh, not in the universities, but outside. So for those of us who are outside of Turkey and who don't have a deep understanding of the political situation, could you give us some insight into to how the political scene in Turkey has, has led to this very direct kind of crackdown on academic freedom? Turkey is going in the direction of authoritarianism uh, over the last decade. But it is basically spiraling out of control over the last year since elections and then re-elections, etc. The government basically decided that an internal war, a kind of state of war, uh, was very good in terms of convincing people to vote for the ruling party. In June last year, the government lost its majority and this state of war was put into effect after the government lost its majority and in November there were early elections and the early elections the current government won very easily because the number of people who were dead, the number of people who were casualties of the ongoing state of war in Turkey turned into votes and unfortunately this is an ongoing phenomena uh, right after the failed coup, the government used the failed coup to garner more support from various corners and various political forces. And the current government or the current powers to be in Turkey right now have even further power than last year because of the failed coup. So therefore, Turkey is very, very fast going in the direction of an authoritarian state. And it's very interesting to the global academic community, the, some might call it a kind of paranoia about the role of academia in society, because it seems that the government sees academic freedom as somehow a huge challenge to its authority. Yes, that is something that actually you are very familiar with. Your country had to be under apartheid for a very long time. And I think it would be foolish to say anyone had academic freedom under apartheid. There was no academic freedom. 
and therefore any authoritarian state do not enjoy academic freedom because academic freedom means that there would be numbers of scholars, small or big numbers, against militarism and against authoritarianism. Therefore, a typical authoritarian government would like to do away with academic freedom as quickly as possible. I think what has been most surprising and shocking for those of us who are observing from elsewhere is the scale of the purges that have happened. We've read reports that up to 15,000 teachers and academics have been suspended from their jobs. Could you give us some insight into what that means on the ground, what that means for students, for the academic project, and what that means for all of these individuals who have so suddenly been removed from their jobs? Well, it basically means three things. First, this did not happen overnight. The current government, the current regime, wanted to get rid of large numbers of people for years. And these were particularly people who they regarded as useless dissidents. And so there were lists of people, and the government basically had these lists ready. And secondly, the failed coup attempt and the state of emergency gave the current government extraordinary powers to remove people with basically no legal recourse. And finally, when the government was able to do all of this on a wholesale basis, uh, there was no recourse. People were not able to say, no, we don't want this, we will go, we will object. And so the government basically is able to do a wholesale purge because they have extraordinary powers. So the numbers, therefore, are tremendously scary. And what has this meant for individual academics? And perhaps if you're willing to share your own experiences, what has this meant for individual academics' abilities to live their lives, to look after their families, to progress with their work? Well, before the purges, universities in Turkey had to go through a privatization process. So since 1985, there have been many private universities, and the private universities thrive on the basis of a so-called free market of scholars, academics, who can move from one job to another. And these private universities, from the very beginning, were started with the condition that there would be no tenure. In other words, there would be no job security. So people such as myself, who were regarded as rebels, dissidents, people who got in the way of the management, people who didn't want games or schemes to increase profits, they were kicked out very easily. So I have been fired from different institutions several times, mainly because these institutions, the management, did not want people such as myself. So the precarious work regime, many people started to get used to. And unfortunately, getting used to is a very bad thing in this particular sense. That means people become acceptive of a work regime where the university is run like a neoliberal enterprise. And therefore, when people were fired 
because the government wanted to purge dissidents, many people actually found something familiar. Some of them actually experienced this in one form or another. However, what the government purge basically means is this is now happening in the public sector where there is tenure, where there used to be job security. Now the government says because they have extraordinary powers, they can purge public universities. And that is the reason why there is such a big outcry right now. And what has happened to those colleagues who have been purged? Where have they gone? What have they done? Well, some of them are simply unable to do much at this point, And they are engaged in a kind of struggle to reverse this. The people who were fired over the course of the year, this year, such as myself, they either tried to find a position within Turkey, which was almost impossible. So many of them had to seek opportunities outside of Turkey. And there are certain networks basically built to aid or rescue, so to speak, people who are left, left jobless. For instance, there is an initiative in Germany called the Philip Schwartz Initiative. This initiative last year awarded, uh, rather this year, awarded uh, 22 positions. 14 of them went to people from Syria and six of them went to scholars from Turkey. So these scholars are now placed in institutions for two years with a decent income, with decent opportunities, and they will be continuing their work outside of Turkey, in Germany, for at least two years. But that means a brain drain, obviously. So do you believe that it is the attention of the increasingly authoritarian government of Turkey for these purges, these firings, for want of a better word, of colleagues, for it to be permanent, um, and for them to then replace those colleagues with academics who are more sympathetic to the political position of the government? Yes, that is definitely the case. The presidents of the universities, we call them rectors in Turkey, they are appointed by the president. And the presidents over the last decade and actually over the last 15 years have consistently chosen candidates who are either directly affiliated with the ruling party or who are considered acceptable to the ruling party. But it has become so clear that over the last month, for instance, some presidents, some rectors of the universities uh, sent lists of people to be purged. Wow. Uh, and it wasn't actually the request of the government. It was the decision of the president of the university to send these lists. So the presidents figured, obviously, that they would be considered better servants, better appointees by the current government. Therefore, they were trying to be extremely useful. I can imagine this would create an extreme climate of fear in the workplace, in the university, and that colleagues may feel that they do not have the freedom to teach in the way they want to teach, to cover the subject matters they may wish to cover in their own research, in their own writings. That is absolutely correct. For instance, at Kojeli University, which is uh, just about an hour from 
Istanbul. It's a well-established university. It's a big university. About 13 people were summarily fired on uh, September the 1st. And all of these scholars were regarded highly by the society, by other scholars, and they were distinguished particularly for their services to the society. So when these people were fired, the message was clear. If you're someone who is engaged in political affairs, who is someone engaged in serving the needs of the society at large, you are at risk. So better be someone who lives in the ivory tower, better be someone who is detached, and better stay out of the way of the people who are in power. So that's the message. And because of the, the state of emergency, are legal recourses limited? I mean, is there not a legal basis for fighting a kind of unfair dismissal, or are those cut off because of the, the state of emergency that's been implemented? Well, because of the state of emergency, it is currently almost impossible to seek legal options. However, as soon as the state of emergency is lifted, we do not know when it will be lifted. It's supposed to be lifted at the end of September. Then there will be legal options. And there are some legal counsel around who have already suggested that all of these purges are illegal and they would have to be reversed. But that assumes that the courts are neutral. And that is no more the case. Over the last decade, the current regime basically has lifted the idea of separation of powers. Now, what the government wants is something that the courts have to abide by. So over the last six months, the number of judges and prosecutors who have been kicked out is immense as well. That's a really terrifying scenario that you're painting. What about other forms of resistance or social action? How have students responded um, to these, these developments? Are there any forms of resistance on the street or in other sectors that are taking place? Yes, yes, definitely. As we speak at this point, there is a protest happening right before the Higher Education Council in Ankara. This is an agency that was created in 1981 to basically get rid of academic freedom. It was the very first institution that the military regime then wanted to create because the military regime knew that this council could control the universities. The universities had always been a center of resistance, a center of dissent, and a center of, of course, social movements. So since then, this agency has been used to suppress academic freedom. But over the last decade, this agency has become basically a puppet of the government. So now, the colleagues who have been dismissed from universities, the teachers who have been dismissed from their schools, and the teachers' union, Eitimsen, is protesting outside of the council. It's a big number. There's a Twitter action happening at this point as we speak. Mm -hmm. So that sounds promising. So there are, I presume, thousands of people on the street trying to raise awareness. And we've seen 
in the media, many protests in Turkey in the past couple of years. Are all of these issues linked? Yes. The main issue is that the current government is interested in turning education into a form of control. What they would like to have is a conservative institution at the preschool level, at the primary school level, or at the secondary school level, and certainly at the higher education level, all schools should produce very conservative subjects. And that is very clear, but higher education wasn't the institution or wasn't the sector that was easily controlled because it used to be at least semi-autonomous. But with the recent events, particularly the state of emergency, now the government is making clear that every single educational institution will be under government control. What do you think the prospects are for resistance and change moving forward? It seems that the future of the higher education sector in Turkey is tied very tightly to politics and what happens on a governmental and political level. Where do you think things are going to go from here? It is very difficult at this point to be optimistic. And I say this not simply because there is trouble in Turkey. I say this because there is trouble in all sorts of places, including your country. The neoliberal idea is that, or the neoliberal capitalism, basically wants institutions of higher education to act as if they are regular private enterprises. And money and concerns about money profit should dominate. Therefore, if you were to work with colleagues from Britain, it would be very easy for you to hear about the pressures on them. And if you work with colleagues from Greece, for instance, you would hear about their complaints about the budget cuts, about not a single person being hired over the last four years, and so on. So, so long as this neoliberal version of universities, that model of universities, dominate, that will mean that universities will not be the universities that they used to be. They will be a form of university that is a tamer university and certainly not good to the society, particularly those segments of the society who are poor. So in your setting, for instance, students are struggling against the government as well as other forces, uh, which basically are interested in making education a luxury for large segments of people. And that, to me, for instance, is unacceptable. Education has to be a publicly driven enterprise, and it should be free, free for all. However, that is an idea that seems to be archaic to people who are committed to neoliberal capitalism. So that said, when we look at the politics in Turkey, it is clear that the current regime is interested in silencing universities. Therefore, so long as the current regime prevails, so long as a single-man rule prevails in Turkey, there would be no academic freedom 
for universities. However, we know from history, we know from all sorts of examples that this cannot go on forever. Yes, it could perhaps go on for five years, it can go on for a decade, it can perhaps damage institutions almost irreparably. However, it will have to end. But it is hard to predict when it will end. Yeah. I have, I have two questions also about the future. My first question is, I guess, a little more idealistic. I was very happy to hear you draw parallels between the situation in Turkey and some of the struggles that are taking place in South Africa right now. So my first question is, is what possibilities do you think there are for transnational solidarity or transnational action between different countries that are experiencing similar challenges in their higher education sectors to kind of challenge the neoliberal model? So what ways do you think we can work together across borders? That's my first question. I'll ask you the second one in a little bit. I mean, it is quite obvious that universities played a very progressive role over the last century. And when these universities played this role, they did not necessarily play them on the street. They often played this role on the basis of scholarly publications, on the basis of nurturing ideas that are very liberating, that are very strong, and that serve segments of the society that have been underserved, that have been oppressed. And when these ideas were published, when these ideas were public, they traveled. So when they traveled, they made a huge impact. So ideas produced in France, for instance, made an impact on Germany, made an impact on Greece, and they made an impact in South Africa. So the same thing should continue. However, what we know at this point is that many of the outlets that used to publish interesting pieces nowadays are not necessarily so interested in publishing material that is very progressive, that is very illuminating, and that is in some ways earth-shattering. Therefore, I think it is important that we get some of the stories that need to be heard, such as the stories, for instance, that have to do with the struggle that is ongoing in South Africa right now, those stories need to be written up. Some of these stories have to be written up in perhaps a journalistic sense so that they can reach larger audiences, but some of it has to be published in a more scholarly fashion so that scholars can learn more about how to support each other. Just let me be even more specific. Many scholars travel to conferences, and when they travel to conferences, many of them try to serve the dominant model, which is the individual going to a conference, presenting his or her work, and sort of reaping benefits. When I travel, I try to do it differently. I try to establish networks of solidarity between scholars, particularly located in the global south. So I have, for instance, many colleagues from places like Brazil, South Africa, because our challenges are in many ways similar. So as 
we build these networks of solidarity, it becomes easier to learn from each other and to support each other. So ongoing sharing and dispersal of ideas and research and stories and experiences and building networks of solidarity across boundaries. I think those are really, really important values to hold. So coming to my second part of the kind of two-part question I had, how can we as colleagues and academics and students outside of Turkey, how can we support academics who are facing all of these very difficult challenges right now? Is there anything practical and specific that we can do to assist? I think this very interview is doing exactly that. This interview is going to allow an audience to hear about what's happening in Turkey and get an insight as to why these things are happening. And I think, therefore, it is very important to spread the word. I mean, since I was dismissed in April, in late April, I have been giving interviews and I have been writing so that the world knows about what's happening in Turkey. And I have even uh, gotten help from people so that the pieces I write were translated into Greek, into Italian, so that they could be read in the local language. So that means if someone wants to support the people who are struggling for academic freedom in Turkey, one of the first things that they should do is to spread the word. Let the people know that academic freedom is under a huge threat in Turkey. So that's one of the easiest things to do, I think. And secondly, I think it is very important that people look at invitations, particularly look at people who could be invited to speak, particularly scholars who were fired, who were dismissed, and let them do the talking. At different conferences, they can actually be invited so that they can give an insight, a better grasp of what's happening. And finally, I think it's very important that when someone really wants to do something practical, they can actually write letters. So they can write letters to the prime minister of Turkey. They can write letters to the uh, higher education council. They can write letters to the president and so on. But so long as people do not remain silent, I think hope will prevail. Those are very encouraging steps, and I do hope that many listeners out there will um, take you up on those suggestions. On the, the suggestion of inviting colleagues to come and speak at conferences and so on, I understand there was a travel ban that was placed on academics in July. Has that been lifted, or is that still in force? That is a very good question. It was indeed the case that there was a travel ban, and this travel ban in many ways was intended to scare people and let scholars know that the government can do things that used to be unheard of. So many people who wanted to travel to conferences had to cancel their engagements and so on. This travel ban is currently lifted in the sense that there is not a general travel ban, but every academic who is affiliated with a university has to present papers at the border to the authorities and the piece of paper says this person who works at this particular university 
is allowed to travel. So that is the academic or the state of academic freedom in Turkey. You want to travel, for instance, to go to a library in, say, Hungary, and you have to present papers. So there are limitations not only on intellectual and political freedom, but also the freedom of movement. Absolutely. And finally, this is uh, happening over the last three weeks. There are scholars who go to the airport and present their papers. And then the police say, ah, your passport is reportedly stolen. Therefore, we have to confiscate your passport. So the passport that this person holds in his or her hands is confiscated by the police on the allegation, which is, of course, completely fabricated, that it was stolen. So this is the state of things. Very worrying. Is there anything else that you would like to add or that you would like colleagues in South Africa in specific to know about the situation or any final words that you'd like to share? Well, to be very honest, I have great respect for scholars in South Africa. Many of them were engaged in the struggle against apartheid. And after the fall of apartheid, many of them took the difficult task of transforming universities. And when they took on these tasks, they had to assume administrative roles, which got in the way of their publications, got in the way of their research, so on and so forth. I mean, and I say this not because I read about these. I have traveled to your country several times to learn from South Africa. My main intention to visit South Africa over the years uh, has always been to learn from the experience in South Africa. Therefore, when... Uh, we talk about our colleagues or my colleagues in South Africa, I would expect them to support the ongoing struggle in Turkey because, as you well know, under apartheid, it was very difficult to be optimistic. It was very difficult to be hopeful. However, as we all know, hope prevailed and justice prevailed. Yes, it prevailed and then it led into the current mess. We know about that. But however, it prevailed. Therefore, uh, colleagues in South Africa, every time they publish something about the ongoing situation in Turkey, the message that professional organizations from South Africa, these messages that come from South Africa, tend to be very forceful messages. And I appreciate it very much. It's been a real pleasure to speak with Seredar. And we're grateful for his time in telling us the story of academic life in Turkey right now. Clearly, the situation is terribly oppressive. And we're sending our solidarity and support to all staff and students who have been affected. Clearly, academic freedom and social justice simply cannot thrive in an authoritarian state. I hope listeners will be motivated to help in some of the ways our guests suggested. Finding commonalities across national borders and cultural experiences is so important if we're going to work together to find ways to save universities as public social institutions in Turkey, South Africa and beyond. Hi, I'm Naledi and I'm doing politics deja adverts. It makes me angry because you can't just do that to people, you know, because... It's their job to have families to take care of. Also, the students that need to get lectured, it's just not okay. If that was to happen here, 
oh god it'd be like something bigger than fees must fall you know it'd be it would literally it'd be violent i think you know if if it was happening here they honestly need to take it up with the government they need to be able to stand up for their rights you know i don't know i don't know what they're allowed to do they i don't really know much about techy but it's really just about like taking a stand as a community you know because sooner or later the government has to listen i mean we've seen it happen all the time throughout history you know but it may take long it may take not so long but you know it has to happen i am tiani uh, ngoben i'm starting become pbe academic freedom i think it would imply in in general terms it would be the ability but also that capacity that is also speaking to the relationship between you as the academic and you know the very state that you belong to to say we capacitate you enough to go beyond these and these areas to share your knowledge if it's in history then you know you can share your knowledge with another country or any other you know field of 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 academics i think it, it just has to do about that ability and being capacitated enough to 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 share your knowledge i think i think it is a suppression because if you are putting in places travel bans you know which which you know prevent them from attending conferences or any meetings i think you're simply saying that your expertise as an academic you know should not you know be had outside the country or outside that very space that you're confined to so it is i think a limitation to that academic freedom that one as an academic should be able to exercise that is to pass on their knowledge to even countries that are outside or even places outside where where they are based the academic citizen is a podcast sponsored by asau the academic staff association of wits university asau is the union representing the interests of academic staff at wits for more information visit www.asau.org.za the academic citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions we welcome your feedback comments and suggestions for future guests and shows email us at theacademiccitizen@gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org Today's show was presented by Mehita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungi Limbenyane. Thanks to Sadar Djermentioglu, Spo, Naledi and Tiani for their time. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles. 